0: Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
4: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Please be advised this story contains adult content and graphic language.
0: It's not justice at all to know that the respect that I had for these guys and what I thought they would produce for me and do for me, they did the complete opposite and they... They made my pain worse, and they continued to do that by not admitting what they did and not just holding themselves accountable.
3: Welcome to Sleuth. I'm Linda Sawyer. We hope you recognize our effort throughout this podcast to shine a light on just how justice is dispensed and determined in Orange County, California. With the checks and balances a platform like Sleuth has brought to bear on this subject, there is now a new DA in town. On November 6, the people of Orange County spoke and voted in new DA Todd Spitzer, who dethroned a 20 year incumbent in Tony Rakakis. Mr. Spitzer won on a platform of cleaning up corruption in the Orange County DA's office. With that, we have invited a timely roundtable discussion welcoming back our trio of guests, which include Wozniak Defense Counsel Scott Sanders, victim advocate Paul Wilson, who lost his wife of 26 years to Mr. Sanders' client Scott DeCry, and a 30-year award-winning veteran journalist, Scott Moxley. Mr. Moxley, through his weekly Moxley Confidential, informs the public by consistently keeping an eye on the political and legal maneuvering taking place in the Orange County justice system. Welcome to Sleuth again, gentlemen, and thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. For this past season of Sleuth, the focus has been on the Dan Wozniak case, because I believe Dan was not alone in committing the murders of Sam Hare and Julie Kibuishi, and I've shared with listeners my work in support of this theory. There are others involved in these murders who should have been charged as accomplices, but were not due to perhaps political expediency, with the DA's office seemingly consumed by a win at all costs mentality. So the narrative seemed to be get the death penalty for Dan Wozniak, and the others will simply be summed up as collateral damage. Therefore, I wanted to invite all three of you gentlemen back to the program today so each of you can discuss. Some of your concerning issues that your work has revealed regarding the shortcomings of the Orange County justice system, not only you covering them, Mr. Moxley, but you experiencing them from a personal standpoint as a victim's family member, and of course, Mr. Sanders experiencing it as a as a public defender in the county for over twenty six years. So with that, let's talk about the election. We just had an election and an incumbent of twenty years was basically ousted. The, the people spoke, and uh, I know that you had a lot to say about it in your coverage. So why don't we start with you, Mr. Moxley?
2: Sure. As we film this or record this, it looks like Mr. Spitzer, the challenger, is up by 40,000 votes, and, uh, which is a trouncing. And particularly given the history of the office, Rokakis won in June 1998 the first time and has been openly seeking a six-, four-year term and I think entered into the year believing he would be the next district attorney and was stunned that 61 percent of the voters in the June primary wanted someone other than him. And I think you could look at what the office did in the following weeks leading up to the election and wonder whether decisions were made in the interest of justice or attempted to be made to influence an election.
3: I'd like to know. Mr. Sanders, I know that I've heard that, in fact, Mr. Spitzer really was running on a clean up the DA's office platform. Do you feel like all your work in the informant scandal had the results that you were looking for in this election?
1: Well, we weren't doing it for the election, first of all, so it really wasn't part of the analysis. Never was I ever doing work and going out there and litigating these issues thinking that Mr. Rakakis would would be replaced. It's happened, and now we'll look forward to see if Mr. Spitzer brings in a new thinking about how to deal with issues of misconduct, both within the office and outside of it. So it's really in his ball field now. He can can usher in a whole new era that looks nothing like the one we've seen for the last couple decades.
3: But on the campaign, he was touting all your work, and he was giving you credit for what you uncovered.
1: I don't know how much he was directly recognizing our work but i think he was speaking to at least what the work had done to show that there were problems that he believed needed to be changed or responded to so he's talked a lot about it it's been a big issue for him i think it was an issue that that did move people unquestionably i think it just you know and and the writing of people like scott I mean, you know
3: mr moxley covered it how many articles would you he say? wrote
1: over a hundred he's written over 160 i know on the um
3: that's a lot of articles.
1: On the informant, a lot of words. How of many time. words is
3: that? Have you ever figured it out? Uh, I don't want to. I really don't. It's a lot, <laughs> Mr. Wilson. I know you had firsthand experience and and got involved with Mr. Spitzer's campaign to the point where you just spoke about your f- firsthand experience. Why don't you tell my listeners about that?
0: Sure. Well, I met Todd you know, six years ago, seven years ago. Todd gave me a platform to speak at. He was a lot of victims' rallies and. Was instrumental in helping me heal at that time. I give Todd a lot of credit for that, and he was very kind to me. And like I said, he he gave me that that platform that I very much needed at that time.
3: And in context, how how long ago was that?
0: Oh, it's, uh, it's it's been seven years. So Todd uh, reached out to me, and my first victims rally would have been probably six months after Christie was shot and killed in Seal Beach
3: by Scott DeCry, who was Scott one Decry. of Correct. Mr. Sanders' clients.
0: Correct. So, Todd is, he ran on victims' rights and, and cleaning up that office. And everything I know about Todd, he's been true to his word. So, he's got a, a large cleanup. And so, was gonna... there a
3: commercial that you did with him or what? I
0: did. I, I did do a commercial for Todd. I wanted the voters to know the corruption and the scandal that I experienced with Tony Rakakis in that current district attorney's office. And that's basically what the commercial was about.
3: Did you want to share with listeners your experience when you did actually meet with Tony directly?
0: Which time would that be?
3: Was when you said that you sat down with Mr. Rukakis and you could tell that it was his choice. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, I had numerous meetings with Tony over the course of six and a half years. So, <laughs> many of those were face-to-face and um, they were very heated.
3: What were they heated about?
0: Well, because I was contesting his decisions and what he was doing and didn't agree with them And we basically just decided we didn't like each other. Um,
3: so a, diff- <laughs> a different experience than you had with Mr. Spitzer.
0: Completely different. But, but again, I mean, Todd's giving me a platform to speak on as a victim and Tony Rakakis is out there cheating and lying to me and doing things that I don't agree with. So I held Tony accountable and I knew he was lying and he was cheating and he didn't like that very much.
3: Do you have a sense, Mr. Moxley, uh, of your readers, how they feel about perhaps this new administration? Was it just time? I mean, tell me what, if anything, you're getting any feedback from your readers. OC
2: Weekly's readership is 20 to 40 market, essentially. So it's younger people. And uh, they're always suspicious of law enforcement, uh, particularly political law enforcement. Let me go back to something about how he won or how... He ended up losing this contest. I think you have to start. The very beginning is that Tony Ruccoacus abandoned his public oath, and without him doing that repeatedly, nothing else would have fallen into play. I wouldn't have written certain articles. Uh, Todd would have been struggling in a way, but just repeatedly abandoning his oath, and then give us
3: an example of that.
2: Well, I th- I think in the, in the in the Decry case where it was very evident. By 2014.
3: Again, let me just say for listeners, Scott DeCry was the largest mass shooter in Orange County history, and one of his
2: victims was your wife, Mr. Wilson. That's correct. So the key was, in a place like Orange County, where there's largely suburban juries who are not hesitant to vote for the death penalty, this was considered a slam-dunk death penalty case. And yet... They violated the defendants' constitutional rights constantly. They hid records.
3: Covered it up and lied about it, Right.
2: And then they committed perjury. And in the process of that, Tony could have gone the high road and ended the cheating and fired the people on his staff uh, who were cheating and and go after the deputies that committed perjury in a death penalty case. He did none of that. So that's the basic right there.
3: In fact, even said they didn't agree with Judge Gothel's ruling, right? I mean, I remember the sheriff saying that she thought he overstepped himself. You had a speaking engagement, I believe it was at a competing tabloid, and you spoke with and she was there, Sheriff Hudson was she, there. I mean
1: they've they she and Mr. Akakis have repeatedly talked about their frustration with what happened. I don't know that people listening understand that we had a debate that got spurred by an informant that was both on the Wozniak case and the Decry case. And in the Decry case, we ended up writing a lengthy motion, a 500-page motion analyzing what we believed was a hidden informant program.
3: That's how it all came to pass because you had both clients. right? So you all of a sudden saw things happening in both cases that ultimately drew you into the informant scandal. So
1: the line of the Sheriff's Department and the District Attorney's Office is that this informant ended up in these locations next to high-profile defendants by accident. It was just a coincidence. And
3: you represented two of those high-profile
1: defendants. That's right. And that ended Dan
3: Wozniak
1: and Scott DeCry. Yeah, and Judge Goltles in the DeCry case did some miraculous, really incredible things. First of all, he told the DA's office to turn over materials they didn't want to turn over. And then he allowed us to have hearings over three years in which more and more evidence poured into the courtroom. Prosecutors took the stand— um, Which
3: was very different in Judge Connolly's courtroom because he wrote similar motions, but there was no hearings. Well— They were just a decision was made.
1: That's right. And Judge Goethl's moved over time. He first denied our recusal, then looked at more evidence and granted it, then dismissed the death penalty. Judge Connolly didn't allow any hearing. And by the way, what's kind of important is the Wozniak case actually led to some of the most important evidence in the Decry case. So, for example, when we lost in Decry, we went and got records in the Wozniak case. And those records with Judge Stotler, as a matter of fact, he then ordered some records. I don't think he knew what they were, but they were devastating to what witnesses had said in the Decry case.
3: You saw a similar name coming up. Is that right?
1: Similar names. Informant names. Informant names and evidence we had never seen before and evidence that contradicted what witnesses had said on the stand over months and you and know,
3: Mr. Moxley was covering it oh my, at length, like, you know. like incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: incredible. Like
3: award-winning incredible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and not to speak for Paul, but Paul, who started as someone who couldn't have been more opposed to what we were doing, I would say was watching, and you had had
3: not a happy relationship. Nothing, no cooperation. It was very cantankerous. He was
1: was
0: rightfully angry,
3: right? You were representing his wife's killer. Yeah, 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 this is
0: this is the guy that's defending the guy that a part of your
3: life away changed
0: my life. I was married for twenty six years, three children. It's a guy changed the course of my life, and here's the guy defending him.
3: And how could you not? How could you not feel the way you felt? Yeah but i also want to talk about the conversation you had with the prosecutor i think it was dan wagner you told me that you went right up to him and and said is are the things that mr sanders is saying in court about this informant scandal are
0: they true what was yeah his? correct i mean when all of this started coming out and we noticed that judge goethals was allowing this to go on and and happen in the courtroom we would ask the, the public, the, uh, the appropriate questions. And the, Wagner's answer was, that's just the public defender throwing up smoke and mirrors and trying to dance around this thing and extend it out. That's none of that's true. They're all lies, There's nothing you need to worry about.
3: So no ownership, he's, no.
0: He's, he's sitting there lying to families right to, right that, to you. Uh, that are all murder victims and he's lying to us. Was and he that knows the he's lying
3: inciting incident for you? Was that when it all turned
0: Was already starting to turn. I think there was a a, about about year two, about two thousand five, maybe about two thousand fifteen, that I started to see this thing unhinging and asking why. Why is it? You know, This this is a very simple case. Why is the judge allowing all this? Common sense has to tell you that there's a reason why. I mean, this is a very good judge, and. He's allowing it, so something's not something's not sitting Something right. Something's
3: legitimate about what Mr. Sanders you, you, is discussing. Your lis-
2: your listeners should know that in the early years of the case, the prosecutor's office went out on a PR mission to blame Mr. Sanders for the, all the delays in the case,
3: as it, they did in Wozniak.
2: And as as it turned out, as which uh, Judge mm-hmm. Goethals determined, it was actually the sheriff's department, the prosecutors that had delayed the whole time because they were hiding stuff that should have come in a long a lot earlier.
3: So they weren't they they weren't submitting what the court was asking for right. and you, coming up with
1: all you, kinds of excuses. You've got you to understand I mean that when I talk about this sometimes on the defense side it can be difficult. This was a case where ultimately when we had marshaled all the evidence and gone through everything and spent a year studying we owned the facts. It, when we walked into the courtroom it we had documents that showed the movements of informants and the concealment of it and how it wasn't coming forward in cases. So you'd be asking witnesses questions, and their answers would be ridiculous. And I remember at some point, Paul and I have talked about this. I would look back at him. Like, can you believe it? Kind of a little bit. Like, this is, abs- this is absurd. And kind of wanting to see his reaction. And I did see the reaction.
0: And again, that's before we were— yeah, friendly I mean we were still you were just uh, seeing we were what you were seeing, but yeah. it's starting to unravel and he he notices that I'm noticing that it's unraveling and he's it's like watching at, an Abbott and Costello show uh, absolutely and something that uh, two days after the shooting happened we were all summoned down to the DA's office and it brought us all upstairs and Tony's up there telling us what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And the news media is assembling downstairs. It's a, it's a huge news conference. Of course. Um, and he says to us, I don't want you guys exposed to the media at this time. This is something that I'm going to carry and I've, I've got your backs and I'm going to take care of you guys. And he did anything but take care of us. And, um.
3: Did you feel like right then there was something funny that, you, no, no,
0: I mean this is 2 days out. Listen, right, this is so. my this is my first exposure to the system, right? The system is going to work because Right. We all want to believe. We're all
3: Americans and it's the best system in the world.
0: Never been in court, never had any exposure right. to it. Here's the top law enforcement. You certainly on did my nothing side. to be
3: there. You nothing. didn't want to be there.
0: I'm, you had, I'm I'm 100% convinced that, they're gonna that this guy you. is going to protect me and they're going to do what's right and the system is going to work exactly how it's supposed to work for me. Did complete the complete opposite. I think that
1: people don't realize sometimes is they think, well, if you uncover misconduct, it only helps defendants. Like a somehow, murderer. yeah, right. they'll all but but all of this, but it's
3: for society. Well, it's- and also
1: for victims. So the problem is if you're in a death penalty case and 20 years later evidence that comes forward that could have been available 20 years earlier. That's when victims' lives get unraveled again. So cheating doesn't help on any side. And in in reality here, if they would have played it straight from the beginning.
3: They would have gotten the death penalty.
1: They would have had a pretty good shot. Not that I would have ever wanted it. I would have always been opposed to it. But they they could have done it clean from the beginning. And one of the great and terrible examples is that we are years into this litigation. We are the DA's office has been recused. And we discover a whole series of records called a a special handling log that basically said that everything we had said way back in 2014 when we first filed the brief was accurate. If they had turned that over when they were supposed to and they were required to because in 2013 they had an order to turn over all of these types of materials, they refused. If they had done that, Paul wouldn't have gone through this. None of it. It would have all right there, been out. What would have happened? How, tell, tell us. How we would have dealt with all the informant issues right there. We would have understood what was the scope of the litigation. We would have realized it all. There wouldn't have been.
3: But what what would have been the downside for the DA's office to admit all of that? To
1: well, expo- and let's let's say you know some stuff. DA's office sometimes sheriff's office. Right. If the sheriff's office had admitted, why it why do
3: you think they were afraid to say, "Okay, this happened. Let's move on."
1: Oh, because it's devastating. Because because behind all this, unfortunately, is
2: years of concealment. It's not just the Scott DeCry case.
3: So other cases would have unraveled, right? Is that
2: what you think, Mr. Moxley? A whole lot of cases. Absolutely. In January 2014, when Matt Murphy and Dan Wagner and the Homicide Unit received Scott's motion uh, and DeCry, I was with them. And they huddled around and they looked through it and they told me, and they trusted me at this point. I trusted them at that point. This is Nothing. This is just wild stuff, but I could see the look on some of their faces of cringe, a little trepidation, and and so I the you know it's a five hundred some page motion, and I remember on a Saturday going to a coffee shop thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna speed read this puppy, and I get like forty pages in, and it's been like four hours because it's so dense. That's how much hard work went into that, to that brief, and I You're talking I, about Mr. Sanders the original brief and. I knew th- I was. I just stopped. was that the
3: first yes. document that revealed the informant scandal.
2: Yes, and and I knew this is going to take me forever to digest because there's so many. And names. you didn't have
3: any real professional relationship with Mr. Sanders at that point. I'd did you?
2: I'd watched him I mean, in court. You knew of him. I knew of him. I'd watched him in court. In um, fact, some of the people in the homicide unit had previously told me good things. They thought he was a really good lawyer.
3: Isn't is that so? It's
2: true, and so. Eventually, when I felt I got a little bit more into it, I realized the issues are way beyond me that he's discussing in terms of all the informant games and the sheriff's department, the DA, that I requested a meeting. And we were hesitant about each other because he'd read my coverage of the Orange County District Office in a favorable, that I'd written favorable stories about their homicide cases. So when we sat down, we didn't know exactly where we were going to go. All I wanted out of the meeting was one thing, that that he would open up a channel that I could ask him questions. That was it. Just start with that. He was worried whether he could trust a reporter who was so close to everybody in the homicide unit Thank at time. goodness
3: you went first. <laughs> <laughs> I was second after that. <laughs> That's the article where he came with the cowboy hat and the right. zinc oxide on his nose. and <laughs> You were afraid of the sunshine well, at that I point. I had
1: never really had any um communications with reporters maybe once in a while somebody would ask me something but this was really my first time I'd ever Foray been a, yeah, into the media yeah, and, it, and it you know and it's been well, most
3: media don't say very nice things about your clients so I right. could understand you not
2: that's right well, one of the one of the remarkable things for me in terms of signals was in the after maybe a week or two where the DA's office had time to digest more about what was in the in the brief there was a hearing with in in the Wozniak case with Murphy and Matt was walking behind him at the, in you know, pacing, pacing and standing right behind him. And, and I was sitting in the and back And you hadn't of that seen cor- that
3: kind of behavior before. I
2: hadn't seen that from him that I could remember. But w- what the difference was Scott swiveled around in the defense di- there and just stared up at him. It wasn't frowning or it just, just he was digesting. Like you could see he's just take, but he spun around everywhere. But he wasn't
3: afraid. He of- wasn't
2: afraid. And that was the signal. I was like, is one of my pet peeve covering court for, for so long is, I hate lazy lawyers, you know. And I was like, oh, this guy's this guy is ready to fight, and he wasn't over the top. It was just you I, hate lazy journalists too. I, I do, I do. <laughs> but I've seen so many. Matt is a, an impressive uh, courtroom figure, and I've seen many defense lawyers just crumble around him. And for for Scott Sanders to spin around and follow him like I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you on this. And it was, it was a turning point for me that I have to pay attention. I have to learn more. And thankfully, my company allowed me to drop covering other things to spend more time kind of digesting this and learning the issues. And they were tough at first. The Messiah rules and when, you can, when the cops can talk to you or not and that sort of thing. It was, it was a learning experience. It took years to kind of feel like I, I understood it appropriately. But it all began there with them telling me I couldn't trust Scott but me seeing a signal of him ready to fight. And then he he slowly opened up and helped me understand what was in his motion and why he put it in.
3: Do you feel satisfaction, anybody could answer this, with the election results?
2: Well, I, my friends joke with me that as an investigative journalist, it's better to have Tony Rakakis in there because he's just a scandal machine. So um, I laugh at that. I think I've told you that before. Yeah. And uh, um, I mean, I've I've known Todd Spitzer and Tony Rakakis uh, since the late 90s, maybe. Well, I've known Todd since 1995. Tell my listeners about a little bit about
3: Todd Spitzer's background.
2: Well, Todd uh, has been on a school board. He's been a county supervisor twice. He's been uh, termed out at the state assembly. Um, he's had a radio show on KFI many years ago. Or at least he was a producer or something like that. He's been a reserve, a Los Angeles uh, police department officer. And, um, you know. So he he has served the public over the years. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a, unlike Rakakis, Tony, uh, Totspitzer is much more of a policy wonk. He gets into the nitty gritty of why you have to do something right. Rakakis is more uh, my friend's calling on the phone that needs help. Maybe a case doesn't get filed. For example, uh, one of the first indicators for me about Tony Rakakis was his office filed a a complaint against George Arduis, who is a billionaire Newport Beach real estate developer. He has an apartment complex, massive, and uh, he was refusing to give refunds to all these poor people, just systematically. That was in the complaint. Within like 45 minutes of it being filed officially in court with the time stamp, he had it yanked. Arduous was one of his campaign contributors, and that cleared the way for George Arduous to pass Senate confirmation to become U.S. ambassador to Spain. That's the type of thing that Todd has campaigned about, not just recently, but kind of fought against or argued against that you can't have a system operating like that. And I can tell you that the prosecutors on that case were horrified that they had they'd worked on it for years and years, and for him to yank it for what they believe are political concerns, was unacceptable.
3: Do you think that with a new administration, the cleanup that Todd Spitzer promised to his constituents will indeed take place?
1: I just am taking the perspective that it's a possibility, that he will he'll bring that in. I want to be positive about that. But this is what I would say. It's not going to be enough to just look forward and make sure that it doesn't happen in the future. There's issues to address here that are not going to just go away. and Like what? Well, right now we have a phone call scandal. We have issues with regard to, and to say what that is, there's been calls that were recorded from inmates to their lawyers improperly, unquestionably. Those numbers have grown as recently. What re- do you mean improperly? Well, you're not allowed to record calls from inmates to their lawyers. It's strictly prohibited and has lots of legal implications.
3: And they have been recorded. They have. And They've you been, know this for a fact.
1: Yes, this has been admitted. This has, what do you been, mean admitted? this has been admitted by the telephone provider and by the sheriff's department. There's no question. Do you have
3: the records of these? Phone yeah, calls? It's,
1: there's, it's not. A, it's not a disputed issue. It's been admitted by both entities. The numbers. So not, the
3: sheriff department admitted it. Yes,
1: and they're at this re- point, re- reluctantly. Reluctantly, they they took a long time, and I would say they absolutely concealed it for three and a half years. So now they come forward, and they have admissions of a very small number of calls. How did
3: you come to realize this was and
1: happening? And it, and it wasn't me. It was another lawyer by the name of Joel Garson who uncovered it in a case. Our office then has been leading an effort to bring it out to in other cases. It. I have one of the cases that's involved, but they admitted 1,000 calls on Friday. We're talking here on the Tuesday. On Friday, they've admitted now that the calls may be vastly greater. We think the numbers are more like in excess of 200,000 calls, and we think there's lots of logic supporting that. And lots of cover-up on it. So that's not going to go away, and he has to handle issues like that. There's also the issue of the people that were involved in the informant scandal have moved to the streets. So if you were a deputy working in the jail, and you then— Were part of what you yeah, covered. you were part of it. That's supposed to follow you your whole career. If you made the decision to engage in um, governmental misconduct and concealment of that, then that should follow you. So when you take the witness stand— you get to be questioned about that. It does not look like there's been any disclosures of that in cases. And so that's another issue we've raised. But so that's gonna be the the issue for Mr. Spitzer. I think there's a really good chance he's gonna say, I don't want cheating to take place. I'm I'm hoping that's the case.
3: Well, if he I mean you said he ran on that as a campaign promise. But right? that's
1: I just want to say, but that's just not enough. He has to remedy what's gone on to date. He's gotta make sure that Cases from the past get handled correctly.
3: Well, we'll have Mr. Moxley watching out for that, right? Sure.
2: Let me just add something on the phone call for your listeners. The importance is that you're a pretrial inmate. The The Sheriff's Department controls every aspect of your day and night in there, and you're supposed to constitutionally have the ability to communicate with your defense lawyer. And those communications are Important because you're talking about strategy or your feelings or whatever, uh, where a piece of evidence might be and that sort of thing. And they just can't violate that. And we know they've come in and tried to downplay the numbers so far. The number, the system records the calls. That's a violation. But then the sheriff's deputies in key cases were going in and monitoring, downloading the calls for themselves and not telling anyone. And in the particular case of uh, Josh Waring that's ongoing right now, uh, it's my belief that he had said some things only on the phone, and then Costa Mesa Police Department eventually the prosecutor had to admit that she she'd been given a rundown of the what was said in the phone call. That's how they were aware of and wrote things in certain motions.
3: And w- was the prosecutor using that information?
2: They yes, they did. That's what started the whole ball rolling on us r- that's, realizing that's that. That's
3: the first indication yeah. of these calls.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing that's really fascinating
1: is the group in the jail that kind of be, it was at the forefront of the informant scandal was a group called Special Handling. And so in March of 2015, um, Judge Gothels removes them from the district attorney's office. One day later, that same entity, Special Handling, stops another log that they were keeping. And that log had all sorts of information about their monitoring of phone calls. So, so this, you
3: didn't see that at that point? We
1: didn't know. We had no idea. We didn't have the evidence yet that they were that they were actually listening to calls that hadn't come out until a couple months ago. But way back, they end their log. This is the second log that they ended in a very strangely timed decision. One, just within days of Judge Goltel's ordering evidence in the Decry case, and then second, within days of Judge Goltel's throwing them off the case. And here comes the attorney general's office. They've been listening to all these calls, and suddenly they des- they decide to stop their log for a second time. So that's just one piece. You know, the, they turned over documents that are ridiculous where you're, you've are you got 1,300 law offices you're calling and there's five-week periods where they're claiming there's not a single call made to a lawyer's office. It's absurd stuff. And so when you engage in that kind of conduct repeatedly, and we've gone through this, through our litigation and through this litigation, what do you do with the sheriff's department that keeps behaving like this? Well, here comes Mr. Spitzer, and you have to hope it's to the rescue, but that's
2: a that's a tall order. And, and- how
3: do you feel? Because for so long you said... Your relationship with the DA's office was a positive one, right? Sure. Where I, you never saw any of this.
2: I had no idea. I'd watched certain battles litigate out, and I wasn't aware. I knew that there were trouble with certain prosecutors. I mean, one, for example, was tipping off the organized crime about raids that were on the way. Those wait, wait. T-
3: what does that mean? You you tipped off? Well, No, no I'm aware oh, of—
2: Of a prosecutor of, doing in that. In Orange County, he was working in league with organized crime to tip them when they were going to be police raids. Um, wow! He, he lost his license, but now he's back in practice again. When did that happen? And he, by what the way, he the contributed year? to Tony Rakocis. Yeah, he was a Don hitter to, yeah. to Tony's. He so, was. Yes. Yeah. So, can we say his name? Brian Kazarian, right?
3: And how long ago? When was he a prosecutor? This was the
2: beginning of the Rakocis term, right? Back in. The,
1: well, he was. A, years I mean, ago. he was a prosecutor starting when I did. We were in the almost the same class
2: twenty six years ago, almost. But the key here is that. If the every time you go into court, the judge will say, or the lawyers are say during when they're doing jury selection, when this officer or an officer comes in or a deputy comes in, you're not going to give them any more weight than any other witness because that would be wrong. And they all oh absolutely not. Now they come in and they're wearing their weapons, they're wearing their outfit with their ranks and whatever else. That carries weight in Orange of County. Of course, so
3: I think it's an the, authority figure. I mean, that's
2: right. So that, so that the, the way the system, if the system is working, you have to rely on the credibility of those officers to tell the truth. Once that system's broken down, which it has here, how, how can you trust any decision within well, it? I was just going to say it's a trust based system. And in the in the in the informant jailhouse informant scandal, they knew the loophole. Prosecutors and deputies knew the loophole to cite. So, for example, you once a, def- a pretrial defendant has been arraigned and has a lawyer, the government and their agents, like informants, are not allowed to question them about the case. So there's an exemption that if an inmate, wink, wink, that's not working for the government, accidentally overhears the guy confessing. then it's all... Kosher. Right. So they would parade the guy into court and go, did we make any deal with you? No, no, you're not going to get any sweetheart deal at all. So you just, out of the goodness of your heart, you listened in and you heard this guy confess.
3: And you get nothing in return. Right.
2: And so what we've learned in the snitch scandal is the routine was they had meetings. Wink, wink. They wink, wink. And they they would shuffle the informants around. And the informants were writing notes going, I love my little job I have. And the two of them that Scott exposed, both of them who the, – the DA's office said, oh, we have no deal with them. There was no prior deal for them. They did it out of the – good." these are gang – murderous gang members, by the way, who were facing life in prison unless they, cut, unless they cut a deal in some way. And they were being paraded into court. Oh, no deal at all. There was nothing there. And we later on um, saw the paperwork and the process that worked out how they were using that loophole to cheat. Now, she how did you
3: how did you confront your sources in the DA's office when you were seeing this unfold? How did that change or did it change your relationship or your feelings towards these people that you had been covering for sure. years? Well,
2: um, Susan King Schroeder, she is Tony Rakakis' right-hand person, and uh, she was the head of the public relations office. She made herself chief of staff. She was A- the head of what office? I public up. relations office. And, uh As I was writing – as I was learning and I watched the developments in the snitch snitch scandal, she repeatedly, routinely said, I'm going to cut you off from our agency if you keep writing these stories. And I just kept saying, well, then you're going to have to cut me off because I'm going to write what I see in court. And quite frankly, she couldn't even keep up because she wasn't paying attention or whatever – whoever the sources were who were telling her about what was happening, they were ill-advised or they weren't telling the story or she just was down with spin, 100 percent spin. So – I've lost her as a source and she's the main DA flack or was. And so yeah, there's a ramification for telling the truth in a story about what you what you see.
3: Sounds familiar.
2: Well, I mean,
1: this is what's so incredible about having someone like Paul involved and another person by the name of Bethany Webb also who who had a who lost a loved one. There's it never happens. You don't have victims who are so stunned by what they're seeing. I mean that Paul, they
3: rise above what yeah, like their natural well, feelings would be towards you, representing their yeah, loved one's killer, right? right? That For, they rise above that. First,
1: and- that's right. First of all, most human beings can't do that, regardless. Like that, we would be sitting here today, and that we've sat together many times is miraculous. But it's not. That's not me. That's Paul, because I can do it as a defense lawyer. You know, I can. I'm trained to see everybody in 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 all sorts of shades. To have lost your loved one the way he did and still to say, look, I can see how horrible that is and how much it's it's devastated my life, but I still can't tolerate the cheating that's going on in the courtroom and that no one's being held accountable. And that's the key. And I think, I don't want to speak for Paul, but I think that's what's so motivating to him and why he keeps pushing me is that
0: there's- well,
3: that's the tenets of our system, right? right? There's I mean- no,
0: there, There's been zero accountability. Right. And that's the problem. It's the zero accountability. And Does sit-
3: that frighten you?
0: Of course it frightens me. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I'm a guy that went into this believing in this system and the system that's in place for exactly guys like me, right? That's, that's what you think. As we sit here today, I'm still very pro-police, pro-law enforcement, and I believe that there's more good being done than, than there is, is bad. Unfortunately, I got put in with the bad and I had to experience and through that experience, yeah, I I mean, it, it, look at these guys took almost seven years of my life of, and, and like Scott said earlier, the only reason I was going back to court is because they got caught cheating. They got caught breaking the law and that extended the time I had to go to court.
3: The, and so you the, no longer looked at the, it as Scott Sanders' fault. You looked at it as the DA. Right,
0: obviously. And I mean, can't tell you what it's like sitting 10 feet away from the guy that has changed the course of your life. It, tell it, it tell drains, us how it, feels. it takes everything out of your soul. I would leave court that day and just have to go home and close up my house. And just sit there and 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 be alone because it just takes everything out of you it's hard to understand unless you're there actually Steve Hare had a very that,
3: similar conversation with me about that with Dan Wozniak he says you just can't imagine it's
0: mentally and physically excruciating and draining and the fact that I only had to do that because these guys got caught cheating they need to be held accountable and they're they're They, as far as I'm concerned, Scott and Nick, we're going to work to get these guys. They're going to be held accountable. So you're angry. Of course I'm angry. I mean, (laughs) these guys lied to me. It's difficult. I had a son in high school going through his senior year when this all happened. He was, he was getting looked at at by colleges and there was so much to juggle. And the fact that these guys were just using me as a pawn and playing with me and lying to me and they knew exactly what they were doing. Unacceptable to me, and I'm, I'm not going to allow it to happen. And it's at some point, somewhere along the line, those bad guys are going to have to be held accountable. I mean, you've got to understand Paul's gone and spoken to the attorney general's office himself
1: and asked for answers because in 2015, they announced we're going to do an investigation of what the sheriff's department did. It was obvious cover up. Judge Goltel's called out the perjury in written rulings, and it, it's undebatable perjury. And there's plenty of evidence. We're three and a half years later. Not a peep from them, not a word.
3: Tell me what's going on with the Department of Justice and the Attorney General investigations.
2: I think, as Scott was saying earlier, the delay, the three and a half year delay with nothing to show for it. In May, I believe, the California Attorney General, who's supposedly independently investigating corruption in the Orange County Sheriff's Department, held a campaign stunt press conference with the candidate that's trying to replace and did replace as Sheriff Hutchins. So to pose in front of the media right before an election it tells Doesn't us what. Doesn't send the right message. Right. You're not going to do that if you're going to hold these
0: people these, accountable. Right. Plus standing right behind him is one of the lead investigators in this, who's also one of the very prominent figures in the whole snitch scandal Who arena. Was that? We- Who was that?
1: William Baker was one of the people who's been investigating and supposedly on the inside level trying to determine who's responsible. But that investigation that Becerra came to speak at and speak about with Don Barnes, the newly elected sheriff, was an investigation that's led by one of the primary people from the snitch scandal. So a fellow by the name of Jonathan Larson, all through the snitch scandal, in the heart of it, in the heart of not turning over records, they chose him of all people— to be their lead investigator in this very important Mexican mafia investigation. So if you're us looking at this, you think
3: But did he take the stand? Did he He took he the lie? stand,
1: he testified. He told tes- He covered he, up. He gave two testimony in two different cases. He never revealed for years that there was an informant program. So he's a guy that you would think, well, we just move him to the well, side. Why would
3: they put him in charge of investigating
1: why because they're
0: not afraid at all they have no fear of the attorney general's there's office there's
3: nobody that's holding anybody accountable
0: this is one of the things when i met with the doj i made very clear to them that what's happening in orange county they're laughing at you guys they don't they operate as they want to when they want to how they want to they're laughing at you they don't care what you have to say about it they don't care what you think or what you'll do they're laughing at you and what was their response? A number of people at the DOJ, yeah. The California Department of Justice. So there's. What and, was and, the response? Um, their response was, um, we're not here to give you responses.
2: We're here to listen to you, Mr. Wilson.
3: Wow. How do you feel about that, Mr. That Wilson? That doesn't make
2: me happy because the system's not working. And it goes back to, it's been obvious perjury. There's been obvious destruction of records. Even their own records show that they've destroyed evidence. And nothing's happened. So
1: Well, and, and just just to draw draw it back to Wozniak for a second. So in the Wozniak case, we actually went further back. So decry is really limited to about a six-year examination of informant records. In the Wozniak case, even though we never were permitted a hearing, and our argument in the Wozniak case was that. The system is so corrupted right now that it's not a reliable one for imposing the death penalty, that you can't reliably count on evidence being turned over. But when we looked at it in Wozniak was looking back at 35 years of deception because it's been going on forever, the same techniques, the same tactics. And if you looked at case after case since the early 1980s where informants were involved, they always coincidentally landed in the same place. They were using the same what we call snitch tanks or informant tanks. Same techniques, no disclosure. So,
3: and you, then did those snitches get some kind of a sweetheart deal? They always after? do.
1: They always do. They come in, and their line is, "I'm doing it out of a moral obligation." That's what Fernando Perez said in the in you know the Wozniak and DeCry cases. That's what Oscar Moriel did in every case.
3: Now, Matt did give you the letter yeah. from. Fernando,
1: right? There's no no disclosure issue in terms of Matt Murphy failing to turn over Discovery, and we never argued that he failed to turn over Discovery on that level. We did argue that the sheriff's department didn't turn over materials, and they didn't. In fact, after we lost in the Wozniak case was when we got this special handling log that included details about the contacts with special handling and Fernando Perez to get statements. That's almost undeniable. I mean, And
3: also, wasn't the mail order request from uh, Detective Morales discovered at that point?
1: Right. That was discovered afterwards as well. After the yeah. trial was completed. That's the trial was completed. So after Wozniak was completed was when we got in, a di- in subsequent litigation this key document that has so much about what everyone had been denying up to that so, point.
3: So really you weren't given everything in discovery?
1: We weren't given everything. and I've always said this. I'll put it aside and say we don't blame Matt Murphy for not giving us a special handling long. We'll assume that he didn't know about that. He's, but
3: what about the Morales uh, mail
1: request? Well, why Morales wasn't turned over, I don't know. But I will just say we didn't get that.
3: And that mail order request from Detective Morales to the Orange County Sheriff's Department had in it a letter that spoke about the Costa Mesa's belief that there was a co-conspirator in the case of the murders of Sam and Julie. And so they wanted the mail from Dan Wozniak in case there was mail between Dan and Rachel Buffett. Which shows the mindset of the Costa Mesa police at the time that they really did consider Rachel Buffett an accomplice.
1: But again, this is, we're talking about decades of concealment and it would take an army to dig it all through and people are doing it. There's a lot of cases that have been turned around by our numbers. There's 18 cases where the defendant received a new trial. His case was dismissed some very positive outcome for defendants related to informant-related misconduct. So this is arguably the largest scandal in the nation's history, and it's still growing, and it should be growing even more.
3: But when do you think there's going to be some form of actionable response from an authority that has something that they can claim that, okay we're going after these people and they're going to pay they're going there's going to be consequences to their actions where do you see the end of this odyssey that you're all on
1: probably never i mean realistically i mean i'm not hoping for the us department of justice or the california department of justice to save this 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 Work is just work that you just have to kind of keep going on until someone cries uncle. Do you
3: think it's ultimately going to be the public that makes it? I mean, here we do have an election. After 20 years, we have a new administration. I I would imagine that gives you some form of hope, cautiously optimistic. But is it the public in the end, Mr. Moxley, that you think has the power to make changes? Well, they just
2: showed it in Todd Spitzer's election. Absolutely. And what one of the most... Ridiculous or not ridiculous, but more arrogant things that Sheriff Hutchins and Rakakis were bragging about. And when they were doing private dinners and wealthy communities was that nobody's paying attention to this scandal because it's made up. It's we all know around here that it's not made up. It's real. And one of the real um, facts that people should know is they were sending in informants illegally and they were the informants were doing great intelligent Intelligence works. There's no doubt about that. Some of the notes that they were making cleared defendants that were in jail, and they held those notes because they didn't want to change. They wanted that defendant. One of them was a 14 year old boy who'd been charged in Santa Ana with a murder. The notes that they had in their possession said, "Everybody knows this guy was had nothing to do with it. He's a punk. We would never let him in our gang." They kept him in and they dragged it out. They dragged it out for. Um, how long was that? Two, almost two years. Almost two he's years. Custody. 14-year-old boy. So they, they're selective in when they want to use the information. And then they pretend that even though this is one of the biggest informants in history, modern history around here, they didn't really read all of his notes. But they used them in the cases where they wanted to use them.
1: Well, and I would add, so when that district attorney took the stand— do you remember what happened? He said that they had lost their file. The district attorney's office had lost their Who file. Who said that? His name was Steven Shriver. He testified, and James Laird and as well. what is his
3: role? Is he a prosecutor? He, he was the
1: prosecutor on that case. He said they couldn't find their file. The uh, Santa Ana Police Department officer said, oh, it was all in the hands of the district attorney's office. The district attorney's office said, we can't find our file. But it just as Scott Moxley just said, those notes are a great indication of the mentality. And I sometimes when I talk about this case, compare it. The guy who was making these comments to the informant named Oscar Morial is not a great guy, but he at least had the moral decency to know that some kid who didn't do a crime shouldn't go down for it. The folks who got the notes decided the better route was to keep it to themselves because they had a better sense of justice. And so when people are playing on those levels in that type of mindset, you imagine the damage they're doing in this context and so many other contexts. Again, I always say this. If you're cheating with informants who are the most dangerous witness in the system, everybody knows this, right? They're super motivated. They'll say anything. They're a half ounce away from being a car salesman. They're incredibly skilled. They can. I had a difficult time questioning them because they're really talented often. But if you're a district attorney's office and you're willing to play with evidence or the sheriff's department or hold back things, what will you do on other cases, right? Because that those are easy. You just turn over everything on an informant. You put it out in front of the jury and let them make a call. But for years here, decades, I would say, that hasn't happened. So it's not, and this is why the argument I made on the Wozniak case, in a culture that allows that, you don't get to have the death penalty. That's my argument. And that's one that you know didn't work, but we'll see what happens down the road. But it's frightening to me to think about what else is out there that we won't ever touch, when you see this type of kind of – because I never saw – I've spent most of my last five years of my life studying these issues. And I never found something that was helpful to a defendant from an informant that was disclosed. I never found it.
2: And in, in the case of Oscar Moriel, this is a guy who uh, walked down the street with his buddies shooting at people on their porches and didn't care. So he's technically a serial killer. And I think he admitted how many on the witness stand? Five. It, he admitted five but he can't know because he's shooting as he's walking down the street at night with his buddies he's doing this all the time this is who Tony grakakcus and the sheriff's Department put their faith in um, as he's facing a life sentence and as far as in the Scott DeCry case you're talking about well when
1: we're well, he testified. He testified in three cases with nine defendants looking at life. He ended up testifying in the Scott DeCry case and having to answer some of those questions.
2: And this is one of the, So you're like,
3: saying they used him as a credible witness,
2: right? Yeah. They. Oh, yeah. They And used they it. pretended they didn't have a deal with him, but he got a sweetheart deal yeah. recently.
1: I mean, Scott And Scott wrote a number of stories about Oscar Morial and the lunacy of this, right? A true serial killer. If you go out five times to do shootings. Isn't that the very definition of a serial killer? You don't become less of one because you're a gang member.
3: Or a mass shooter. Right?
1: Then he goes up and, you, you, I don't know if you've ever heard the recordings that were concealed in which he said, I can make my memories better if you give me a better deal. Didn't make it into any of his cases. And those things can be found online. Just terrible things. And he gets rewarded because you did a deal with the devil and you can't get out.
2: Okay. I think one of the reasons that the prosecutors love using someone like Oscar Moriel grew up in a high crime area uh, as a serial killer, you wouldn't want to be around him, is that this is actually a remarkable person. I, I wrote this a couple times after watching him for hours in court. He is brilliant. He is, he outraces me by, by a trillion percent by his brain function. The federal government used him in a Mexican mafia case. And he was answering questions before they came out of the federal prosecutor's mouth repeatedly he knew what the questions should have been and he ac- actually don't you want to ask me this that's how smart and slick this guy is he could have been the best auto dealer salesperson at at Fletcher Jones or politician whatever but this guy would sales this guy could sell you anything in the battle he gave with Scott at one point he was able to defend off for hours but eventually Scott got him because it was hours and hours of him grilling him but the Few people can hold up to that, but a person like Oscar Moriel, everything is, he, he doesn't, he, he'll tell you what you want to hear. In other words, he's a great salesman.
1: But, and this is what's the problem. So he's so good. I had all the tools in the end because of this crazy situation in a death penalty case where Judge Goltz made a miraculous ruling. We learned all these things about him. But when he was in trial with those defendants with their lives on the line, they didn't have those tools. They didn't have the evidence to show he was lying. I had it in some crazy litigation that nobody could have guessed in 100 years. But how's that fairness when people are in trial for their lives and the prosecutor's office turns over four pages of his 200 pages of notes, which they did in cases, or don't disclose his relationship. So you can't take him apart. Hey, Mr. Moriel, here's this and this and this. That's what you need. That's why I always say it wasn't that my litigation in the Decry case was particularly good. I had it all. It didn't take a, It didn't take the headiest guy to do this. In the end, we had a, we'd accumulated all the materials, and we could play things for him that made him ultimately give. And as Scott said, it took a long time, and finally he relented, and then he started to talk proudly about his shootings in the neighborhood and how he how he walked in. But it was hard, and those other people didn't have it. And that's the key. The key to the fairness is you've got to have the evidence that you're entitled to have, so you can question witnesses effectively.
3: I mean that's the foundation of our system. Yeah, it's
1: and and you know that's again I come back to Paul that Paul Paul sees these things in a way that few victims can see it, and I'm I'm still mesmerized by it. I truly am. I'm truly, I know like, you are. Yeah, you know I mean, it. He, I mean, every time he tells time me to,
3: all the time. Yeah,
1: because it's just incredible that with the pain that he and his family has suffered, he can see that. You still don't want this to be the case. This isn't just it's just not the way to do justice. And ultimately victims pay too, because what happened on the Oscar Morial's cases? Well, one of them, the victims think the defendant's doing life without possibility of parole. He's out in a year or two. You know, for whatever you think of this, that's a disaster, right? That's a disaster. Now maybe he should have he deserved to be acquitted. But the victims, they would have said, why don't you just give him the evidence the first time and we'll litigate it the right way or don't use him because he's unreliable. But it's never good for victims either. If 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road, you're learning of evidence that should have been given over earlier. It turns your life upside down a second time.
3: Well, that's what I've been saying. And I think I've shared with you, Mr. Moxley, like, I don't understand in the case of Wozniak, he had it all, right? He had a confession. He had the murder weapon. He had the treasure trove of evidence, as he likes to say. He didn't have to frame Rachel the way he did. And it seemed to me like there there's a sense, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like in the case of the Orange County District Attorney's Office, there's a sense of that they cherry pick justice, who gets justice and who doesn't. I'd love to hear your reaction to that, but that's someone who has come into town and covered this trial for, in this case, for three years. I don't know the history the way Mr. Moxley does, or certainly you, Mr. Sanders, and I can't speak
2: on behalf of how you feel, Paul, but that's my impression. It might be cherry-picking, but I think one of the things that I learned about, uh, particularly after these Wozniak and Decry cases, is that they, they really weren't focused on them to target them for cheating, they were just cheating against everybody anytime they wanted. They were doing, as they called them, capers all the time against inmates. Um, and this is what they just routinely do. Nobody was, they were operating in secret. They had no management accountability. They were coming into court. They were committing perjury. They were above what they'd the done. Law. They were above the law. And it just, through Scott's work here, it just got exposed that, they took the easiest slam dunk death penalty case and botched it. That's the embarrassment that Tony Rakakis and Sheriff Hutchins have to live with.
3: And I keep asking, how is that justice for the victim's families? I mean, I think you
0: could it's, speak best. It's not justice at all. It um, It's just, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, to know that the respect that I had for these guys and what I thought they would produce for me and do for me, they did the complete opposite and they they made my pain worse and they continued to do that by not admitting what they did and not just holding themselves accountable. I mean, right? That's what
3: I'm just so sorry for what you are experiencing. I just think it's a travesty. I want to thank you all today for being here. It means so much to have listeners hear the truth and and know the real story behind all this. And you all three have contributed to that in such a powerful, honorable way. And I just thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. On our remaining episodes of Sleuth, you can expect to hear from sources who will identify the full extent of others who helped Daniel Wozniak in the murders of Sam Hare and Julie Kibuishi. We'll learn about when and where Tim Wozniak showed up on the scene to help aid his brother Dan in the murders. And then there is Rachel's brother Noah Buffett. What and how much did Noah know at the time of the murders? Finally, you will hear from a couple of explosive surprise guests, which will round out our season, ending with a live call-in finale episode, a finale where all our Sleuth listeners have a chance to talk to me directly with any questions, criticisms, or suggestions for our team as we head into the new year with an all-new Season 2. Stay with us as we share all that's left of our work for this season of Sleuth. And know you can find us with the latest Sleuth news at facebook.com forward slash Sleuth podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of Sleuth, share it with a friend and be sure to leave a rating or review. Follow Sleuth on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode.
4: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace.
3: I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies.